The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Thank you, Joy. Uh, just to say, along with her, if you have not yet been to Come to the Quiet, I would invite you to go to Come to the Quiet. Uh, Wednesday night after the meal, uh, if you have not experienced uh, scripture-led prayer before, uh, I know that you're going to find it to be a meaningful time. Uh, it's a very, very beautiful thing. Uh, so, yeah, make sure you check that out. Uh, I'm Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. We're taking a bit of a step out of the book of Genesis. We've been working through Genesis now for, for quite a while. And, we're, and uh, way back when Pastor Terry was putting together the sermon schedule, we thought it would be good uh, if we took a Sunday to talk about the Lord's Supper and I'm really glad uh, because, first of all, it's, it's one of the most special times in our community and faith life that we have together. And also, uh, as we are growing and there's new faces here on Sunday mornings, it's good to, to stop and to talk a little bit about what it is that we do when we partake of the bread and of the cup together. And so that's, that's going to be this morning. I invite you to pray with me first. Let's spend some time in prayer. Father, I thank you for meeting us here this morning as we gather as your children. And one of the songs that we just sang is still sitting on my heart, Fall Away. Thank you for your perfect word. And as we look at your perfect word this morning, as I preach from your perfect word but with imperfect lips, I pray that whatever you have for us from your word today, whatever in whatever way you want to change hearts for the sake of the glory of your Son, I pray that you would grow that, that you would let that stick and grow in our hearts. And if there's anything else aside from that that comes out of my mouth today that is not what you are growing, I pray that it would fall away. All of this is for you. I pray that you would teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start with this. This is a, a picture of a book. I wish I had the book uh, in person. Uh, I would have had to drive to my parents' place this week to, to, to get it, and I wasn't able to. But my mom sent me a picture of this, and it is a book that is very precious to me. It's precious to my family. What it is is it's my grandfather's memoirs. Uh, my grandpa passed away. It's just about 10 years now that he's been gone. Uh, but a few years before that, before he died, he got it in his mind to write his memoirs. And so he spent countless hours, and here's a man who's not computer literate, really, but he spent countless hours in front of a computer typing his life story. And it's, and it's titled Grace and Grace Only because his life story is about Jesus. And he, he went through his life and talked about things that he'd experienced and, and the family that he has. But every chapter, everything that he talked about, he took it back to the grace of God shown to him, and he gave this book to us, and we treasure this book because he gave this to us so that periodically we could pick up the book and think of him and remember him, that periodically we could pick up the book and be encouraged by his faith, that periodically we could pick up this book and see what his life was truly all about. And there are some similarities between this and, and this. 
what, what we do here when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and when, when we take of the bread together and we take of the cup together, which we'll be doing a little bit later this morning, what we do here is really about remembering. It's about remembering who Jesus is to us and proclaiming what it is that he has done for us. And there's a number of different passages that touch upon the Lord's Supper that I could have chosen to preach from this morning, but uh, the one that I was drawn to uh, during the week or during these past few weeks was 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 to 34. And uh, in this passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing the Corinthian church and he's taking an opportunity to correct them and instruct them about how they are approaching the Lord's Supper. And there's some principles that I think that we can very much learn from in this passage. So we're going to look at this together and uh, see what God has for us today. So I invite you to turn to, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 17 to 34. It's also going to be on the screen if you can read that from where you are. I invite you to stand as I read God's word to us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks, who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. May God bless the reading of his word. Please have a seat. There is a lot there in this, those few short verses. There's a lot going on. And I think, first of all, it's clear that in Corinth, the understanding of the Lord's Supper is a mess. Paul had previously been there uh, in the early years of the church. He had spent a year and a half living in Corinth. He had taught in the synagogues. He'd been part of the church being established. And he had undoubtedly taught them many things about God and about the life of faith, and surely that had included instruction about the Lord's Supper, but it seems now that whatever they had known before, they've lost complete sight of that now, because the Corinthian church, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, has completely gone off the rails. I mean, it is so messy that even if we read those first few verses of this passage that I just read a number of times, I don't think we get a real clear picture of, of exactly what's really going on. 
They do seem to understand that there is a thing that's called the Lord's Supper. I think they're clear on that. They do seem to understand that they should be partaking in that. But it is very unclear, even in the reading of the text, exactly what they're doing in approaching the Lord's Supper. It's unclear who's bringing the bread and, and the wine. Uh, possibly it's the people who live in the home that they're, that they're meeting in. I don't know, but what is clear is that not everyone is receiving it. Some are, some are receiving it, but they're not sharing with others, and uh, there are others who are not getting anything. And some of them are getting drunk on the wine and somehow still calling this the Lord's Supper. They are completely off the rails. This is a picture that I found online. It's a, it depicts the church in Corinth having communion together. You see some people in the, in the top corner, they're holding plates, empty plates, and they're gesturing towards people that are sitting around the table eating food, and then this guy, I don't know, he's, he's uh, sneaking away with a jar of wine, it looks like. Uh, it's, it's a mess. It's totally a mess. And so imagine the Apostle Paul. He knows this church. He's been there. He's taught this church. And now he sees, he's heard that it's come to this. And so in this letter, Paul is, is coming in hot. There is a real sense of scolding here. And basically, he's saying, what in the world are you doing? You people seem to have lost all sense of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. Let me tell you what it's supposed to be. And that's what he does. And he does that by going right back to where it started. He does that by going back to the words of Jesus, uh, back in verses 23 to 26. These are the words that Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, the night before he died on the cross at Calvary. And in these words, Jesus is initiating the Lord's Supper and explaining what it's for. And so for us this morning, I'd like to begin by pulling uh, three things from what he said to his disciples that night. And the first is the word remembrance. Jesus said to his disciples and also to us in his word, this bread is my body, this cup is my blood. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. And so very simply, Jesus asks us to come together to remember him, to remember what he did out of love for us. So this is, the Lord's Supper is an act of worship. It's an act of gratitude, taking the time together to think of him. And the bread and the cup are just meant to be symbols to help us in the act of remembering. And, and nothing more. They are not somehow transformed to be the literal body or the literal blood of Jesus, as some traditions believe. They do not have a supernatural ability to grant us forgiveness, to grant us grace, as other traditions believe. It is only through faith in Christ that you and I are saved. So these elements, the bread and the cup, just serve to remind us of the one who has saved us. And so remembering Jesus is a primary reason that we celebrate this, this meal together on the first Sunday of every month. The second word I want to draw your attention to is the word proclaim. In verse 26, we read, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Greek word that is translated to, to, to be proclaim in this passage is the word katangelo, and that word means to announce, to declare, to make known. And in many other places in Scripture, uh, it is translated as to preach. So when we eat this bread and drink this cup together, we are, 
we're preaching. I don't know if you were expecting to come here to preach this morning. Maybe you thought that that was, that was just for me to do today, uh, but it's totally all of us because we're having the Lord's Supper together. And when we have the Lord's Supper together, we are preaching the good news of the gospel of Jesus to each other and to whomever else might be observing. That's what this is for. We are declaring for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lord's Supper is is for that, and proclaiming the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lord's Supper is also for that. And then, there is this idea of the new covenant. In verse 25, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. I think, I think when the disciples heard Jesus say that, that the hair on the back of their neck stood up on end, I think when they heard him say that, that they had shivers going up and down their spine, because as Jewish men descended from the forefathers of Israel, they were very familiar with the word covenant, with the concept of covenant. This had long been the language between God and their people. So here's, qu- here's a quick definition of what covenant is. A covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. I'll say that one more time. A, solemn, a covenant is a solemn commitment guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both covenanting parties. So a covenant between two countries might be in the form of a treaty or an alliance. A covenant between a government and its subjects might be a constitution. Our church covenant is a, or our church constitution is a, is a covenant in that sense. There's always two parties and always with clearly stated promises or obligations that these two parties have to make good on in order to maintain the covenant. And in the Old Testament, Old Testament, there were a number of different times, points in history, where God made a covenant with his people. He did that with Noah. We heard about Noah just a few weeks ago as we're marching through Genesis. Uh, he did that with Abraham. We've just started talking about Abraham uh, last Sunday when Pastor Terry was, was speaking. And in a few more weeks from now, Steve Morris is going to be speaking, talking about the covenant that God made with Abraham. And God also made a covenant with Moses. Now, as the way is the way of covenants, there are always obligations on both sides. And in the covenant with Moses, on God's side of the equation, was that he would be with the people of Israel, that he would protect them, that he would provide for them, and that he would bless them. And on the other side, on the people's side, of the covenant that God made with Moses and the people, they were saying that they would exclusively, exclusively love God and that they would show allegiance to him exclusively and that they would obey him. That was the covenant. But just like every other Old Testament covenant, the people could not hold up their end of the bargain. If you remember that Moses wasn't even down from, the Mount, from Mount Sinai yet. He, was, he had the, the provision of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, in his hand, coming down the mountain, and before he was even down the mountain with all of this newly inked uh, covenant materials, they've already, at the bottom of the mountain, been, been creating a new god to worship uh, out of gold, a golden calf. 
That was quite possibly, uh, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would have been the, the shortest covenant in all of history. And so we see these cycles through the Old Testament. God initiates a covenant so that his people can have relationship with him and the people cannot maintain it. Over and over and over again. And you and I would be no different. I remember as a kid reading, reading uh, Exodus and thinking as a kid how dumb the Israelites seemed to, me, to be to me. How they saw God do miraculous things and then they doubted him. And then they saw him do miraculous things and then they doubted him. And the older I get, the more I realize I'm, I'm no different than that. And it's the same, it's the same with this. Uh, if, if that was the covenant that we were in, we would not hold up our end of the bargain. Romans chapter 3 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us could possibly be righteous enough to maintain the standard of a holy and perfect God. But God loved us. God loves us still. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. Jesus took my sin, he took your sin upon himself, and in turn, he imparted to us his righteousness to anyone who puts their faith in his ability to forgive sin. That's what the new covenant is. Uh, God talked about it to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. We're not going to go there right now. But there was a new covenant coming. The disciples knew that it was coming, and now we're here. And I can't imagine what that would have been like to hear Jesus say, this is the new covenant of my blood. But we have this new covenant, and on our end of this new covenant, there's just one thing, only one thing, and that is to put our faith in Jesus who died for us. That's it. And on God's side is everything. On God's side of the covenant, he gives us salvation, forgiveness for all of our sin, relationship with God, and eternal life. Plus, he gives us his Holy Spirit who enables us to have faith in the first place. So the one thing that's on our side, he's helping us do that too in a way that we could not possibly do on our own. And as I thought about this this week, <laughs> it reminded me of Gerald Carnelson. I don't know if he's here. He's probably here somewhere. Uh, Gerald is just finishing up his role uh, of financial administrator in our church. He's been doing that for a while, and he's done a fantastic job. Uh, uh, Krista Wynn is stepping into that role. She's going to do a fantastic job as well. But I want to tell you a little bit about what I have experienced about Gerald's level of patience. Uh, it's a well-established fact that I'm terrible at handing in receipts. <laughs> you can talk to Gerald after, and he'll say, yes, that's true. Um, I'm just slow at handing them in. And so there was this process. So at first, when I was first in this role, there was a form that you filled out with all of the different information that you, you, you stapled the receipt to that, and you, you put that in Gerald's box. And, you know, I, I did the best I could, but, well, I probably didn't, but I, I didn't do very well. <laughs> and then after a while, it kind of changed. Gerald said, you know what? I know that filling out the form is hard. You know, just take the receipt, sign your name on it, and maybe put what the ministry is, and, uh, and put that in my box. And so we did that for a while, and maybe it was a little bit better, but after a while, it's, you know, Kevin, I know signing all that stuff is hard, you know. Uh, <laughs> maybe, just, maybe just put your name. I'll take care of all the rest. You know, and I can see where this is going. I think the next thing probably is that they'll just say, you know, Kevin, signing your name is tough. I know that. <laughs> just put your thumbprint on it, and we've, we've totally got this from here. 
But really, in a, in a small sliver of a way, uh, that reminds me of this new covenant. God says, just have faith in the grace of Jesus. Just have faith in the grace of Jesus, and I'll help you have faith. I'll do all of it. And then I'll give you everything that's important, everything that you possibly could crucially need in your life. I will fill every spiritual hole that there is. Just have faith. And that's the perfect new covenant that God has made with us through Christ. Historically, a covenant was ratified by a meal together. And certainly we can biblically view this this bread and this cup, this meal, as our grateful acceptance for this new covenant that God has initiated with us. So that was Paul taking us back to the basics. The Lord's Supper is a time to remember Christ. The Lord's Supper is a time to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And the Lord's Supper is a time for us to acknowledge and accept again and again and again this new covenant that he's given to us. And now verse 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I think that often we misunderstand this idea of what it is to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I think that there are some who read those two verses and they truly believe that in order to participate in the Lord's Supper, they have to have it all together. I can't take the Lord's Supper today because I don't have it all together right now. That's, that's what the belief sometimes is. They truly believe that they have to somehow be worthy of the righteousness of Christ before they can participate. And maybe that's what you believe or have believed. And for you, maybe then, when you come in here in the morning and you see this sitting here on the table, maybe this is a source of anxiety for you because you're not sure whether you're fit to take it or not. You're not sure if you are worthy to take communion or not. And if that's you, Please, please, please be encouraged this morning. This verse, the verse I just read, has nothing to do with us being worthy. It does not say, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord while being unworthy will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's not what it says. None of us are worthy. Not on our own, anyway. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Pastor Terry is not worthy. Billy Graham wasn't worthy. The Apostle Paul wasn't worthy. Again, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous on our own merit. In fact, the very thing that we're celebrating here when we drink this cup and eat this bread is that it is God who makes us worthy. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are worthy. So no, this isn't about worthiness. This is about an unworthy manner. It is the way in which we approach communion. It's our mindset. It's our heart set. And there are two ways that I can see in today's text, in 1 Corinthians 11, 
that, the many, that many of the Corinthians were coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And that looks different than what we m- might experience here, but I think, I know, that, that there are a number of principles that we can take from that, from both of those things. So here's two problems that I think that they had coming to the table in an unworthy manner. The first problem was a problem of the heart. Their hearts weren't focused on Jesus. They were coming to the table obsessed with being physically satisfied by the bread and by the wine. Some of them were eating all the food before the others even showed up. Their focus was on themselves, not on Jesus. Their focus was on their stomach and not on his death and resurrection. And Paul called them on this, saying, don't you people have food in your own home? Honestly, if you're hungry, eat at home. Eat at home first so that when you come to the table at the, at the gathering, you can focus on Jesus and not focus on getting full. Now, we don't have that same issue here so much. If you've come here this morning to fill up on bread and juice, this isn't going to go well for you. (laughs) You are going to be grossly disappointed. (laughs) I just lost my place. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't believe that we as a church are, are focused uh, overly on the bread and on the juice. I don't think that's our thing. But I do know from personal experience that we can sometimes become preoccupied with our own thoughts, our own plans, a hundred different distractions, and that we can actually quite easily go through the motions of this meal without really remembering Jesus. And when we do, the words of the Lord to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 29 can apply to us when he says, these people honor me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is merely based on human rules that they have been taught. We are in danger of the same thing in lots of different ways. When, when we gather and sing songs together of worship to God like we did earlier, if our heart isn't matching what we're singing, we are, we are just doing rules taught by people. We are going through the motions, but our hearts are far away from God. The Lord's Supper is like that. The Lord's Supper is a heart event, or it's nothing at all. The second struggle that the Corinthian church had at the Lord's Supper was a problem of community. Earlier, before chapter 11, uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians, we see that they were prone to jealousy and quarreling. They mistreated each other on the basis of wealth and status. And in communion, we can see that they were unwilling to share with one another. Put simply, the, the Christians in Corinth were not loving each other well. And because of that, they were missing another very important point about the Lord's Supper, and that is that the Lord's Supper is something that we are meant to do together in unity with one another. Listen to this. Back in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. You see, some people in the church were trying to have the Lord's Supper on their own. That's, that's kind of like, that's kind of like if I come here on Sunday morning for the Lord's Supper, I say, you know, now you guys go on ahead without me. I had the Lord's Supper before I came. 
And that sounds ridiculous because I didn't have the Lord's Supper by myself before I came. I couldn't have had the Lord's Supper by myself before I came. Maybe whatever I had was a special time. I don't think there's anything wrong with sitting down with bread and and with the cup and remembering Jesus on my own. That sounds like a great devotional time between me and God. But that's not the Lord's Supper because you can't do the Lord's Supper by yourself. The Lord's Supper is designed to be a group event where we proclaim the Lord's death to one another in the context of church family. And by my calculation, there needs to be at least two people present for that, or else it's not the Lord's Supper that we're eating. And we can't properly come to the table and honor Christ together if we are not loving one another. We can't properly honor Christ together this way if we are not honoring Christ together this way. In Corinth, the wealthier people were eating the food while the believers who didn't have means were pretty much just watching. In verse 22, Paul says, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? My friends, there is no hierarchy at the table. We could have an employer and employee walk in the doors on a Sunday morning and attend this church together And when they come to the table, they're just siblings. Could have a prince and a pauper come into these doors on Sunday morning and they're just just siblings. We are brothers and sisters. In the body of Christ, we are brothers and sisters honoring Jesus together. So those are two kinds of problems that we might, or that might prevent a believer from approaching the table in a worthy manner. One problem is not focusing on Christ in our hearts, and the other is a problem of not loving each other, or holding something against each other, or judging one another. And actually, I'm not even 100% sure, and I've wrestled with this, and I wasn't even sure if I was going to say it today. I'm not even 100% sure, in verse 29, that when Paul says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I'm not even sure that he is thinking only about remembering the physical body of Christ. I've wondered a lot this past week if maybe he was also thinking about the body of Christ, the church. That anyone who eats and drinks without remembering the body of Christ eats and drinks judgment on himself. Certainly the words of Jesus in verses 23 to 25 tell us that we are to remember the sacrifice of Christ's physical body. But the overall context where we find this passage, if you stop and think about this for a minute, the overall context of what we are seeing Paul talk about in 1 Corinthians 11 is all about the church. Certainly regarding how the Christians in Corinth were treating one another at the table, but also this is chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12 is next, and there's not chapter divisions in the actual letter that Paul wrote. Chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts that God has given us and how those spiritual gifts are totally and completely about building up the church to honor Christ together. And then chapter 13 says that if we're using our spiritual gifts and we're not loving each other, then it doesn't mean anything. All of that makes me think that when Paul talks about remembering the body, maybe he was also thinking about how we 
are loving one another as the body. But either way, in verse 28, Paul encourages us to examine our hearts before communion to see if we are approaching it in, a, in an unworthy manner. And this morning, when you prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper and you examine your heart, maybe you will find that you are not presently in a mindset or a heart set that is reflecting on Christ. Maybe you're thinking about other things or maybe you'll find that you're taking this more lightly. Or maybe you will find that you're holding someone else in judgment right now, that there's a relational problem. So first of all, if you find that, any of that, don't be discouraged. Paul's words here are, and I love this, let a person examine himself then. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He's not saying examine yourself and if you find yourself with an improper focus, run away from the table. He's not saying that. He's just saying, examine your heart. And if there's something there to confess to the Lord, then just bring it to the Lord. Just take care of it. God, is, God, is, God hears you. Just take care of it with God. And then, just, and then go ahead and, and, and go to the table and take communion. He's saying, after you've done whatever business you need to do between you and the Lord, if you find something there, go to the table with confidence and with joy, because you are welcome at that table. Just one last thought about the word judgment in, in, uh, in this verse that we just looked at. We see it in verse 29. If we had time this morning, which we don't, uh, we, we would go further into this passage, which talks more about the judgment when, when we've just read about uh, Without discerning the body, there, a person is eating and drinking judgment upon himself. We, we would have time to unpack more of that if we went through the rest of the passage. But all I'll say right now is this. The ordinance of the Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. It is a worshipful thing. It is honoring of Jesus, and it's edifying for us. It is not a flippant thing. It is not a thoughtless thing. And to go through the motions of honoring Jesus without honoring him in our hearts is serious. It is a disrespect of the one who is most precious. And so approaching the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner may result in discipline from our Father. And that's difficult, but it's also merciful. Because when our loving Father disciplines us, he helps us to bring our focus back to Jesus, to put our heart set back on Christ, and that's what this table is all about. My friends, in a few moments, the other Pastor Kevin, the younger and cooler Pastor Kevin, <laughs> is going to lead us in the Lord's Supper. If you don't believe in Jesus, if, if you're here but you don't believe in Jesus, or you don't believe that he died for sin, if you have not accepted his forgiveness, I completely understand that you would want no part of this. Your own, your own integrity is already telling you that remembering Christ and proclaiming his death isn't for you. There is absolutely no shame in just letting the elements pass you by this morning. Nobody will judge you for that. And if one day, in any moment, or even this morning, if you turn to Jesus 
you're always welcome at the table. But if you are a believer in Christ, this is what has been given to us to do together. Examine yourself first, and if you find that in your heart you are not yet approaching communion in a worthy manner, again, I invite you to confess and then partake freely. And let us together remember he who has saved us, and let us proclaim his death until he comes. Amen.